what can startups learn from their bigger brand counterparts? That's one of the questions I posed to Sean Matthews, who left agency life to join RBC Ventures and work with their portfolio of startups. We cover everything from defining brand strategy to putting together your first brand budget. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Sean, thank you for joining me on Standout Startup Brands. You have a super interesting profile, and I see that you've worked on both the agency side for big brands, but also over the last few years, you've been at RBC Ventures helping earlier stage startups with brand strategy. So excited to really dig in and ask you some questions. Thank you so much, Amrita, for having me on the show. I'm really excited to share all that I've learned over the years. So looking forward to this. Well, I'm going to start with a really fundamental question, which is, what actually is brand strategy? The way I see brand strategy, it's like the roadmap to a destination called brand love. And there are some very key building blocks. If you don't get them right on the onset, you're not going to reach that destination. So the key building blocks that I see is having a well-defined vision, purpose, you know, the promise, which is very critical. And I will talk about that. And the positioning, which encompasses the differentiation and what makes you different and why should audiences buy you. So those are all the key building blocks. And when I think of brand, in my mind, I'm thinking about how do you deliver this promise? And delivering the promise is a whole organization effort. So if anyone was to ask you, who's the real custodian of the brand? It's everyone across the board. If you buy into that promise and the vision, then it's the job of product marketing. It's the job of everyone to make sure that you deliver that experience and that promise every step of the way. Absolutely. I'm so glad to hear you say that because I think for a lot of people who are less familiar with brand, including marketers, you know, who might have not been a brand marketer in their career, you know, I think brand often gets too intertwined with just identity and design. So definitely really interested to hear that take on what brand is and what brand strategy is. And I'm curious, you know, given that most of the people listening are likely startup marketers and founders, how early should startups be thinking about brand strategy and brand building? That's a very interesting question. And as a brand person, I'll say that you should start thinking about brand from day one. But I think the best way to gauge whether you really have a brand in place is when the offering has been created with the intent of solving a human, real human challenge. So it's coming from a very consumer-centric point of view and not a very product-centric point of view. What I find among some startups, and I'm not generalizing here, but some startups have the tendency to fall in love with their product. Tech guys create a product, and then they go out searching for someone who's in need of it. And that's a long journey because, you know, you'll have to pivot a couple of times. You'll have to find your ground. You'll have to find audiences and then embark on the task of getting them to fall in love with your brand. It's a longer journey if you don't start early. I think there are a lot of startup brands with the right kind of leadership who know the importance of thinking brand from the onset. I was talking to a financial institution startup who serve SMEs, and I was impressed by the founder who talked about how brand was committed to and started early in the day. And when I've been following their brand, I can see that there's a story that manifests itself across the board. And likewise, when I started working on some of the brands at Ventures, they were in their very early stage, like Mido. And we started thinking brand right from the beginning. 
what is the purpose? How are we changing the audience's life? What are those pain points that we are solving for? And today I must say that Mido may be one of the biggest brands in the category because there's no competition. But because they started early in the phase, started to build their brands, if tomorrow they should get competition, they would be insulated from competition. So that's the benefit. Right. It can be a real competitive mode. So when you work with startups, especially these really early stage ones, and I totally understand what you mean that, you know, some startups don't think about brand at the beginning, but when you are working with these startups, what are some of the challenges that you see startups face specifically when they're building a brand from the ground up? You know, to be fair to startups, they are facing this pressure of having to deliver quarter by quarter results. And so it's a natural thing that they gravitate more towards performance and allocating a lot of budget on performance. Brand takes a backseat in that case. And then there's also this view that brand seems to be a very big word for those who have big budgets and the multinationals. It's in a way they might be approaching this conversation with a defeatist attitude of saying that, hey, if I don't have the big budgets to do this and I can't do the stuff that big brands do, why even bother? So that seems to be the narrative that I've been hearing from you know some of the startups that I work with. But in ventures, it's a different story because we're also backed by the bank. So it's not that bad a scenario as compared to some of the ventures that you'll see out there. And do you find that when it comes to this idea of if I don't have a big budget, do you think that there are just different outputs of building brand? If you're a small startup, let's say, and you don't have the budget for a TV commercial, are there other things that you can deliver that would be basically an output of building a brand that would still make it worthwhile to be thinking about these things? Absolutely. I think, you know, it all starts with your own channels. You've got your website, you've got your social media, you've got content where you can actually start telling the story. And you don't have the money for big budget commercials. You've got YouTube and you've got videos, online videos that you can create very efficiently in-house and start telling that story. I think the only difference with the big brand marketers is that they've got a lot more production quality in the way they do things. The quality of ideas might differ, but it doesn't mean that you can't start small. And one day when you have the budget, you can actually change the whole way you present your brand. But the whole focus should be on presenting a good frontage and not just focusing on scrappy because too much of scrappy can at times get crappy. That's a great tagline. (laughs) (laughs) I think they also suffer from having a very small team to work with. And they have to prioritize what's the most important resources and skills they need on this team. Sometimes brand is not the resource that they can afford. And that's why I think that there is a huge opportunity for senior marketers to offer their services as a side hustle to the smaller startups. And that should become mainstream, in my view. And do you find that, again, with these smaller companies, you know, with budget being sort of a tricky thing, Other than budget, is there a difference between what you have typically experienced working with big brands and smaller startups? Is it really just that factor is being different or is there anything else you see that is just like creating a different landscape? The one thing that you know, startups can do a lot better is the focus on consumer insights and not consumer insights from a product standpoint, because they do a lot of that, but from a marketing standpoint, trying to get into the heads of the consumer, understanding what really makes them tick so that they can borrow those insights and build good emotional equity over time. And I think 
there is a lack of focus in that area at this point. I know people can't see me because this is a podcast, but I'm doing a lot of nodding because this really relates to my own experience. And I would say even one of my own shortcomings, perhaps earlier in my career, where I was sort of starting inward with coming up with ideas and campaigns and, you know, the activities that we were going to do instead of starting with the customer, because ultimately I think if you do develop those insights, they can give you the blueprint of what you need. And I feel like it's like turning the light on in a room and all of a sudden everything just seems so much more clear and obvious. So totally agree that customer insights is a really important investment that I think is underutilized in big brands. And so when you think about startups and you know the startups that you work with, when they are thinking about putting together budget, you mentioned they often have a lot of budget for more performance-related activities. But if somebody is listening and they're thinking about putting together a brand budget for their marketing team, what are some of the ways that they should be thinking about approaching this? Is there any advice you can give around, like, how do you even come up with a number when you're doing this maybe for the first year? That's a challenging one. And it's a tough question that all of us encounter. It's challenging when you don't have historical data to base it on. But I would presume that when, you know, you start putting a budget to brand, you would have had a little bit of test and learn over time. So I would say you start with the business OKRs, figure out what do you need to achieve? What are those numbers that you're going after? And then the next thing I would definitely look at is the historic results of what kind of conversion rate you get when brand is in market your acquisition, how much you're ever able to acquire, and the cost of acquisition. So typically what we have seen is you'll definitely see that when you've got a good brand message out there and you've got a good brand, you'll definitely see the cost of conversion going down. You'll see the conversion rate increasing. And so working back from what you need to achieve, you'll be able to say that, okay, based on these conversion metrics, you'll need this kind of budget to work backward and extrapolate it to say that this is what I probably need. And if that's not what the business can afford, then you have to work back to say, okay, now we need to scale down what we can achieve with the budget you're giving me. So that's a constant negotiation you've got to go through. To that point, you know, I think one thing that I experienced in sort of the time I've been investing in brand is that especially when you have campaigns in market, I've definitely seen that correlation that you've mentioned where multiple companies, whether it was Float or audiobooks.com, when we had brand campaigns in market, we could see a direct impact on all of those sort of more performance-related metrics. And I think that's a really important point because people often think of measuring brand just in terms of measuring recall or doing focus groups and that kind of thing. But actually, you can see the lift that brand can give you in terms of real revenue, if that is one of the things that you are doing to put this brand into the market. Um, So really glad that you brought that up. Even in terms of organic lift, right? Like we've experienced, you can see organic visits to the website go up. And so those could be a couple of things that you look at in terms of measuring brand, not just the research that you do in terms of measuring brand lift. So we have that in place as well, where we look at, you know, the awareness levels, consideration, all the way to brand love. But, you know, with smaller brands, you're not going to see that brand love take shape right away. Like it takes years in some cases, but within an audience group that you've been targeting, you might see higher results in those areas. And, you know, you brought this up, this idea of bigger brands having these 
bigger production budgets. And I guess for people, again, who are maybe less familiar, I think two of the areas where your brand budget often goes is in creative production, but then also in terms of distribution, media distribution. And one thing we've seen at Float and at other places I've worked is that you can't do a TV commercial, do a YouTube series that you promote. Like I do think that there's different levels so that it's not just all or nothing. And one nice thing about being a steward of a brand in 2023 is that I think customers also are more used to seeing lower production content now because, you know, whether it's TikTok or YouTube, not everything is the production quality of a Netflix show. And so I think that it's not always a negative and sometimes it could even be a positive. And so do you see startups being more open to now exploring investment in brand or do you see this still being an area where more education and development is needed amongst marketing leaders and the C-suite? I've seen that, you know, the well-funded startups, obviously, they've started focusing a lot more on brand, right, which is a good thing. The smaller startups, I think the biggest challenge they face is with, you know, being advised correctly on how to build brand and the resources and all of that, right? I see a tremendous amount of opportunity amongst the smaller startups, but I think there has to be a lot of these experts who they can pull into and gain advice as opposed to having to pay for full-time people. Even in terms of the production value that you talked about, in some cases, we don't have the budgets to engage agencies or bigger production houses, in which case you do have cheaper alternatives who will give you good quality stuff and it doesn't cost you an arm and a leg. So it's about having the repertoire of suppliers at different price range. Yeah, no, that's a really important point. And I've, I've done both. I've hired agencies. I've worked with freelancers. And you yourself have been on the agency side. So given that you've had that background as well, what is some advice that you have for in-house marketing leaders who are kind of going through that thought process of, should I work with an agency? And if I do, how do I even choose one? What advice would you give? I think the decision about choosing an agency or using in-house or freelance all depends on the budget you have. I won't go deep into that, but you do have big, medium, small agencies, freelancers, and depending on your budget, you can tap on different resources. So it's good to have someone like me where I worked in the agency world. I know all the suppliers. I know everyone. So I can take a decision on, okay, this is what we have in terms of resources. Who can probably deliver a good job within these resources? That's one component of it. The other component is when they are choosing an agency, what should they look out for? The first thing is, even if the agency doesn't have experience in the space, it's about how much effort they put into understanding the space. I think clients, what they do is they tend to gravitate towards the easy thing and ask agencies, do you have past experience in the category? So as we know, past experience is not the best indicator of future performance. Sometimes you can give the first time person a chance and they can come up with really great stuff. So I think it's about how much effort they put in understanding the space. I would value an agency that asks tough questions that I can't answer. And sometimes too, I find that with an agency, personally, I feel like number one, do they really want my business? And do they make me feel like I am going to become an important client? Because you know, there are companies where if you're on the smaller side, you're a startup, you know, you might be their smallest client. And I don't know about you, but that doesn't always end up being a great experience. And then likewise, I think sometimes not having 
category experience can be a real plus because they're really coming into this with very fresh ideas. And so I actually see this as much as being a plus now, and I don't see this as much as being a negative. And so when you're, let's say again, you're a marketing leader, you've chosen to go the agency route and you want to maybe choose from two or three companies or three or four companies that are out there other than their portfolio, what else should they be critiquing or assessing when they're deciding who might be a good fit? I think understanding whether the agency gets the space, looking at whether they articulate the right business problem. And it's our responsibility as well to work with them on the business problem that they are answering. And from there, how do they approach it strategically? Do they have the right insight that ladders up to the business problem? If they are strong strategically, can they translate that creatively? I've seen many agency pitch scenarios where marketers tend to jump straight to falling in love with the idea. So they don't give the strategy people enough time to explain. And strategy people are equally to blame because they're like, some of them are with tons of slides. So, you know, being able to see that there's a clear line of thought that the creative is laddering up very clearly to the business problem. And then you still need to go through the route of testing it with consumers. But at least when you're looking at it, you can see the, the relation and the connection between these things. I think on the flip side, the marketers also need to be prepared to deal with an agency. So what I mean by that, it's our responsibility to help them understand the business as much as we want them to understand the business. In typical pitch scenarios, you're sending out a brief to four different agencies and they don't get enough time to understand your business. So I think it's important that we have relationship with a certain set of agencies that when we want to bring them in to help us with something, we work with them to help them understand the business. We give them a very clearly articulated problem. And we as marketers as well, we need to understand one thing very clearly, that the brief is a very sacred document, which is for inspiration, not for information. That's a really interesting way of looking at it. Can you share a little bit more about the difference between using it for inspiration versus information? What is natural to come out of a marketer? They want to tell you everything. Right, their ideas. (laughs) Yeah, and they don't want to miss out anything. I mean, it's in good intention that they want to let the agency know everything. But the brief, the word brief means short, turns out to be a five-page document. From my experience being with the agency world, the shorter, the better. If you can articulate this in one page, it's far more powerful. And it's difficult for marketers to put that into one page. Some of the agencies that I work with, it was as simple as get who to do what by saying what so that they get this, right, in terms of benefit. That's a very tight one pager. You can use that as a summary. And then you can give them all the information you want if they're interested in reading. But I think giving them an elevated view of the problem is super important. That's really helpful. And I'm sure people will want to repeat that sort of shortcut that you've given around the key questions that you want to answer when you're putting together your brief. As we sort of start to wrap things up here, I want to make sure we don't miss talking about some of the work that you've done at RBC Ventures. I know that Mido in particular has been a real success story. Can you talk a bit more about that success and particularly the role of brand in their success? I think a lot of Mido's success is because the team there focuses on brand pretty early in the day. Like I mentioned to you, even when Mido was still figuring out their 
product market fit, their business model and all of that. I was involved with them from that stage, trying to articulate what the brand is all about. And it's gone into a couple of iterations, including the iteration where we were talking to parents, then now we want to talk to teens and all of that. We've gone through that. I think what Mido has been very effective in doing is making sure that the brand is built on very strong insights. And that's all because, you know, it's taken a number of years to work with the team and come up with the best articulation that we all feel confident about. To the extent that now Mido has won a CMA award this year for best brand building in startups. That's testimony that the thinking is strong. It's delivering business results for sure. And most of the budget creation conversation that I had is based on my experience working with Mido. Because whenever they have a brand campaign out, they can immediately see the impact on conversions, on cost of acquisition, organic driving traffic. So it's that experience from which I speak. The other brands that I think are poised to do well within the stable is Dr. Bill, which is a medical billing software for doctors. And then we've got Ona, which is a platform to encourage entrepreneurs or support them throughout their journey of entrepreneurship, right from registration and onward. And then, you know, we talked a little bit about measurement. And I think I've put in place certain aspects of measuring the brand as well, which helps us evaluate how we are doing and then evolve it from there. Thanks for sharing that and congrats on that success. And certainly I have been following some of those other brands. I know you've got a great CMO at Owner who I've been friends with for a while, Zaim. And so really nice to see all the great work that is happening over there. So as we kind of close things out, last question for me before we get into our rapid fire, what are some of the brands, let's say outside of your job, but what are some of the brands that you admire and pay attention to these days? I think one of the brands that I find is has really done a great job, and it's in the financial category, of course, and that's the reason why I keep track of it, is well simple. And I just like the clean look, the simplicity of the messaging, and it's so aligned with the promise of the brand, right? Like if you're trying to democratize wealth management or you're trying to get everyone to grow their wealth... It needs to be accessible from a language perspective as well. So if you read any of their communication, it's super easy to digest. And the graphics are classy. It's very intuitive. And I think that's a brand that delivers promise across the board, as opposed to just look and feel and tone and manner. That's a perfect description of how they really are living their brand promise. And I also very much admire the team at Wealthsimple. And you know, even through their evolution of going from being a very small company to a major player now, you know, I think they've never lost sight of the importance of delivering on that brand promise. So totally agree with you there. So I always like to know the the people behind the names and the titles that we have on this show. So I'm going to ask you a few rapid fire questions. The first one is what's a show that you're binge watching these days? I hope you're not going to laugh at me, but it's the Royals. Okay. I haven't seen that one yet. Mm -hmm. It's drawing parallel from the Royal family, but it's got a lot more humor. And, you know, I love the politics behind everything, but I just think I enjoy the British humor. And that's what's got me for a while. I'm into season four now, but it's getting a little boring, I think. So first two seasons were really good. Have you also seen The Crown? The Crown. Yeah, I did a little bit of it. Okay. Not as much of a fan of that one. No, no, that's too serious. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. 
Next question is, what's a favorite product or experience you've spent money on in the last year? I think after having been cooped up for a very long time, as a family, we wanted to spend on going out and traveling and enjoying the summer. So we took a few trips to LA and a couple of places locally. So I think we spent most of our entertainment money on traveling last year. And I think going forward as well, people are just waiting to get to other places. I have a couple of things on my list for 2023 as well. Oh, very exciting. And actually, that's a nice segue to my last question, which is, what's one thing you're looking forward to in 2023? Now, this might sound like a New Year's resolution, but it's not, okay? Because I actually started it off for a couple of months before the New Year. So I'm focusing a lot more on getting fit. And because of my son, I'm being taken to the gym regularly. So I want to continue that. I just don't want to drop it. That's a great thing to keep up with, whether you start it now or earlier. And I'm also on a fitness journey since last June, actually. And I have to say, it has just been life-changing, really. It's such a good feeling to get stronger. So yeah, we'll have to check in with each other and see how we're doing later in the year. Yeah, let's make sure that we stick with it. I plan to do it. So wish you all the best as well and hope you stick with it. Absolutely. Yeah, we can be accountability buddies. Well, thanks so much for joining me, Sean. That was really interesting. I feel like I learned a few things that I had not really thought about before, and I'm sure our listeners are really going to enjoy tuning in. So for those people who would like to get to know you a little bit more, what's the best way for people to find you? LinkedIn, right? (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it's also very easy to get me on my personal email, which is my name, with a V in the middle, matthews at gmail.com. So it's pretty easy to remember. Sean V. Matthews. We will uh, link your LinkedIn to our show notes so that if somebody does want to find you easily, it'll be a quick click from there. Thank you again and look forward to sharing this with our listeners. And thank you for coming on. Thank you so much, Amrita. It was good to hear Sean share the ways he approaches brand building and measures brand results. One of my key takeaways from this episode was to make sure I take the time to develop rich customer insights before jumping into key brand decisions, something that's a bit uncommon at startups when we're moving so fast and often overlook some of these foundational aspects of brand building. Thanks for listening to another episode of Standout Startup Brands. This is Amrita Gurney signing off from Toronto. Toronto.